This week, we continue our series we've titled, We Believe. Last week, we hit the first of two sacraments by looking at baptism and all the promises that we have that are wrapped up in that gift of God given to us. We looked at how, as the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome, we have died with Christ in baptism, and through baptism we are raised to life with Christ by the glory of God that we might live a new life in salvation. Pretty awesome promise for all who have been baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This week, we are going to be looking at the second sacrament, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Our text is found in Matthew 26, verses 26 to 28. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to flip there. For those that don't have their Bibles with them today, there, there should be one in the back of the pew in front of you. The words, however, will also be on the screens beside me. But before we get there, to set the scene a little, Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room at this point. Jesus has had his triumphal entry. He's come in, all the palm branches, all the exciting stuff. Now he's in the upper room. It's the night of his betrayal. His friends are gathered around him, and they are all celebrating the Passover together. Now, the Passover meal is a reminder to the people of Israel of all that God has done for them by focusing in on a special night of deliverance. It rewinds the clock hundreds of years back to when the people were in bondage in Egypt. Life was not good then. They spent their days making bricks out of clay. Their masters were cruel. Many Israelites died. Most of them suffered. And then one day, God sent them Moses and his brother Aaron. And through Moses and Aaron, God challenged the Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. He sent signs, plagues, really, that afflicted the Egyptians and sometimes the Israelites as well. So that Pharaoh might see that God wanted his people to be free. But Pharaoh was stubborn. He, he hardened his heart. And though plague after plague afflicted his people and himself, he refused to set Israel free. Until one night, Moses came to the people of Israel and asked them to slaughter a lamb. It, it had to be a pure lamb, not one with spots or blemishes on its coat. And they were to take the blood of this lamb and paint the doorways of their houses with it. That's a, that's a pretty gruesome picture. Painting the tops and sides of your door frames with blood. But this is what Moses asked the Israelites to do. And then he told them to make preparations to leave. The time was coming. And it was, it was going to be really soon. That they would be set free from Egypt. So get ready. He told them that part of their preparation would be to make bread, but, but to leave out the yeast. As there would not be time for the bread to rise before they were going to depart. That night, the angel of death visited Egypt, and the angel of death visited every house, not marked by the blood of the lamb, and took the life of the firstborn. Not even animals were spared. The death toll was great. The grief was deep. It was a terrible night in Egypt. But when the angel of death reached a house whose doors were marked by the blood of the lamb, it passed over that home. It left the firstborn in those houses untouched by its blade. There was not a house left untouched among the Egyptians. And in his grief and sorrow, 
Pharaoh let the Israelites go. And Moses led them out into the wilderness, into freedom, and so they celebrated the Passover ever since, remembering the night that the angel of death passed over them. Understandably, this was a pretty big celebration for the Israelites, for the Jews. God had saved them. He had, he had spared them. He had set them free all in the same night. And so they would get together and drink wine and eat unleavened bread in memory of the unleavened bread they had been told to prepare all those years ago. But on this night, with Jesus and his disciples in the upper room, things took a bit of a twist. One of the disciples didn't see coming. And that's where we're going to pick up with our text this morning. We'll be reading from Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 28. We read the word of the Lord. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. Praise in your name. Amen. In 1994, one of my favorite movies of all time was released. Though it was considered a failure at the box office, the film began to generate a lot of buzz once it had left the silver screen. Through video rentals and cable stations, it amassed a cult following. It is now considered a classic, which makes sense. I mean, who doesn't love the Shawshank Redemption? It's the story of Andy Dufresne, convicted of murder, given two life sentences, and sent to Shawshank Prison, where he is befriended by Red, the contraband smuggler serving a life sentence. Life in the prison is not easy on Andy. He's taken advantage of. He's abused. He is belittled. He tries to work for what's right, to make life better for himself and his fellow inmates, but he is constantly put down, reminded of his place. Red and the others try to encourage him to accept his lot in life, to make the best of his time in prison, but Andy can't do it. He knows that there's more out there. He knows that things could be better, and he struggles to break free, to break free from the stigmas attached to prisoners, to break free from the injustice taking place within the prison walls, and to break free from the walls themselves. We're not behind the bars of Shawshank Prison, but in our sinfulness and our failings and flaws, we understand the need to be set free, don't we? We may not like it, we may not have any desire to acknowledge it, because it's embarrassing, it, it hurts us, and it hurts others. But deep down, we know that like the people of Israel trapped in bondage in Egypt, like Andy Dufresne trapped in the Shawshank prison, we too are trapped in a prison. It doesn't have metal bars that keep us in. It doesn't have a pharaoh that oversees our enslavement. And yet, it is a prison that we are powerless to escape. It is a prison that, as we talked about last week, that, that we are conceived in, that we are born into. It is the prison of our falling short. We are trapped in the prison of sin. We see this in Jonah 2, where the wayward prophet writes about how in his run from God, the earth barred me in, imprisoned me here forever. 
In Psalm 107, the psalmist writes, We sit in darkness, utter darkness, suffering in iron chains because we have rebelled against God's commands. In chains because of our sin. In Galatians 3.22, the Apostle Paul writes of how we are imprisoned in sin. As we sit in that, it, it doesn't really surprise us, does it? We know we're broken. We know that we aren't able to do what we want to do perfectly. We, we lose our tempers. We struggle with being impatient. We don't have the control over our tongues that we'd, we'd like to have, but we also know that it's the, from the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks, and so we know that though we want to blame the tongue, our hearts are just as rotten, just as prone to hurting others and ourselves. Oh, how we relate to Paul when he writes, I do not do what I want to do. Instead, I do what I do not want to do. We want to be good. We want to have healthy relationships with those around us. We don't want to hurt people that we love. We don't want to be hurt. We want things to go well. We want things to be good, but we're so good at sabotaging our joy, aren't we? We're exceptional at dropping the ball right when we desperately didn't want to. And sometimes we slip on purpose because the fall looks kind of fun. Or at least so much easier than the struggle to fight it. Yeah, we're trapped in a prison of our own making. We are trapped in a prison of sin. And so we understand why the Israelites would celebrate Passover on a yearly basis, right? They're celebrating their freedom, celebrating when God broke the chains of Egyptian oppression and set his people free. Oh, they, how they must have celebrated Generations of struggling in the chains, experiencing the abuse and injustice, and they're free. Not because of what they have done, but because of what God did on their behalf. And so it hits home for us as we read of Jesus celebrating Passover with his disciples. But he adds a twist. He changes the words and the traditions. He, he picks up the unleavened bread. He gives thanks for it, and he breaks it. And then he hands it to them, to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Now that must have been a little strange. This is new, right? Like this is, this is different. We're not, we're not familiar with this one. Seems a little dark. But okay, teacher, we'll, we'll do what, what you're asking. And then he takes the cup and, and he gives thanks. And when he passes the cup around saying, Drink from it. All of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, this isn't getting any less weird. I can't imagine that this was comfortable for the disciples. They didn't know what was about to happen. They didn't know about what was ahead of Jesus. What must have been somewhat awkward, it must have, what must have been a somewhat awkward Passover for them was the institution of a means of grace for us. We sit here today, we have the benefit of being able to look back at what Jesus did right after that. We get to see how the Son of Man, or the Son of God, blameless and sinless, perfect and generous, friend of sinners, healer of the sick, proclaimer of truth, defender of the weak, how Jesus, the Son of God, was betrayed. Sitting here today, we, we look back on how he was tried in a sham of a trial and convicted by a rigged jury. How Jesus was given a large wooden cross to carry up the hill to Golgotha, the place where he would die. 
But it was not just the large wooden beams that he would carry, but the sin of the world. And as the nails went through his hands and his feet, and as he was lifted up in his nakedness and vulnerability, Jesus became sin for us on the cross. All the sin that, that holds us back, all the sin that we are ashamed of, all the sin that we willingly and gleefully commit, Jesus took all of it, became all of it on the cross. And there on the cross, his body was broken for us. And there on the cross, his blood was shed for us. For there on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out over Jesus for the sin that we have committed. Our sin was put on him, and he took our punishment in our place. And there on the cross, he died. But he did not stay dead. Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, conquering sin and death. And when we believe in him, when we rest in the faith that he has given us, when we trust in him as our Lord and Savior, then the penalty for our sin, the angel of death, passes over us. And the dirty rags of our sinful prison are taken from us, and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are given the pure, white, blameless robes of Jesus so that when God looks at us, he does not see our sin, but he sees the righteousness of his Son, and he welcomes us into the family. Through Christ, we are given the promise made in Jeremiah 31, 34, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is what we celebrate at the Lord's Supper. That in the same way that the Passover broke the bondage of the Egyptians, so the death of Christ, his broken body and shed blood have broken the bondage of sin. When the blood of the Lamb marked the doorway, the angel of death passed over. When the blood of the Lamb marks the heart, the wrath of God passes over. For Christ has purchased the forgiveness of sins with his precious body and blood. In Christ, we are set free. In an iconic and memorable scene, or it's an iconic and memorable scene when Andy Dufresne escapes from Shawshank Prison. There's a storm raging all around him. Lightning is lighting up the sky and the rain is coming down in torrents. But Andy stands up and he rips off his shirt and bare-chested in the face of the winds and the rain, he raises his hands to the sky in celebration of his newfound freedom. I would imagine this is how the Israelites felt as they spent their first night in the wilderness. The chains were gone. They were free. Oh, the celebration. Oh, the dancing. Oh, the hands in the air, the worshiping, the God who breaks chains and who sets his people free. We may tend to be a bit more reserved, though I don't think we need to be. I don't think we should be. As we remember, as we celebrate the freedom that God has given us in Christ, may we feel unhindered and in fact enabled to lift our hands in praise and to worship the God who saves, the God who forgives, the God who breaks chains, the God who sets his people free. Believer, by the blood of the Lamb you have been set free. And though we rejoice in that, though we rejoice in that, we also struggle to live in that freedom, don't we? Andy Dufresne is a great character, but my favorite character in the Shawshank Redemption is Red, the contraband smuggler. 
Towards the end of the film, Red is granted his parole. He's no longer a prisoner, and, and he goes about life, living in this new freedom. But freedom is harder to live in than he anticipated it would be. Though the life in prison was difficult and demanding and oppressive, he had gotten used to the rules. In his freedom, he realized that he missed the bars. He missed the normalcy of life. He wasn't sure he could make it on the outside. Part of him thought of committing a crime so that he could go back, back into the prison that he had been freed from. Not so different from the Israelites. They struggled to adjust to their newfound freedom as well. They grumbled about food. They forgot about the difficulties that had come with their bondage and, and became fixated on the benefits of being in slavery in Egypt. Was there not enough room for all of our graves in Egypt? They asked Moses. That you had to bring us out into this desert to die? Did you save us that, that we might die of hunger and thirst? Even in their freedom, they looked back at their bondage longingly. And so do we, don't we? Though Jesus has died for our sins, though we have been given freedom, we'll sneak back to party in Egypt. Like the Israelites, like Red, we struggle to live in the freedom we have in Christ, and we find ourselves putting the chains back on because it feels good. Because we're used to it. Because we can't break the addiction. Because we want to. Because we're scared not to. Because we're sinful and broken. And we don't know how to keep the chains off. I do not do what I want to do. Instead, I do what I do not want to do. This is just as true for the Christian, the one who has been set free, as it is for the one who does not yet believe. In our shame, in our need, in our recognition of our failings, we also recognize our need for forgiveness. And so we come to the Lord's table. Baptism is something that is done once. Once we have been washed with the water and the word, there is no need to be washed again. God has done the work. But we are invited to the table of the Lord again, and again, and again. It is a regular occurrence. It is something that we are encouraged to do consistently. Though its regularity is not prescribed in Scripture, neither is its scarcity. We are invited to the table as we recognize our need for it. And if we are honest with ourselves, we know that our need is consistent and continual. Some instruction that is given to us concerning the Lord's Supper is that we are encouraged when we gather to partake of Holy Communion that we do so after having examined ourselves. Some have misinterpreted this to mean that we have examined ourselves to make sure that we are worthy. We can never be worthy of God's gift of forgiveness. We examine ourselves to make sure we realize that we are unworthy that this is a gift and that we believe in the God who is giving it to us and that we do not refuse this gift or hoard this gift or keep those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior from this gift. Paul has strong words in 1 Corinthians 11 
For any who treat him or treat this as a meal and not as a gift from God. And the bread and drink from the vine, be it wine or grape juice, is more than just a symbol of Christ's body and blood. In our little red book, our explanation of Luther's small catechism, it reads, The Lord's Supper, instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ, is his true body and blood, in, with, and under the bread and wine, given to Christians to eat and to drink. In, with, and under is the closest we know how to describe what we believe takes place with the bread and the drink. We don't go so far as to say that they are the actual physical blood and body of Christ. We aren't cannibalizing our Lord. But they are more than just a symbol. Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood. And so we recognize for all intents and purposes, we are receiving more than nutrition from the bread and the wine. We are receiving all of the gifts that Jesus has for us. All of the gifts that he desires to give us through what he has instituted in the Lord's Supper. And so we recognize that there is more to it than just wheat and grapes. There is more to it than just symbolism. Christ is in the elements as they are given to us, and we partake of them, that we might receive what he has for us in them. I'm going to say that again because that is incredibly important. Jesus, when he instituted the communion, I'm sorry, I said that's the wrong line. Christ is in the elements as they are given to us and we partake of them, that we might receive what he has for us in them. And so we say that he is in, with, and under the bread and the wine. And so we see that coming to the table is expressing faith. It is expressing belief in Jesus Christ and recognizing that our need for his broken body and shed blood. Coming to the table is an act of repentance. We take of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus because we recognize our faults and our flaws. We recognize our need for forgiveness. And Jesus, when he instituted communion, as our text proclaimed, tells us that forgiveness is found at the table. It's not a one-time thing, but a regular recognition and celebration of all that Christ has done for us. What a life-giving promise we have in the Lord's Supper. What a blessed means of grace. R.T. France says in his commentary on Matthew that in verse 28, where we read that this is my body and blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, in verse, that verse 28 is the most comprehensive statement in Matthew's gospel of the redemptive purpose and achievement of Jesus' death. Later in the commentary, he expresses that it is as people are associated with him, that is Jesus, and the benefits of his saving death, that they are confirmed as members of the newly reconstituted people of God. Red had almost reached the end of his ability to function without the chains. But before he does anything drastic, he remembers a promise that he had made to Andy, and he goes and visits the town of Buxton, Ohio, to a particular field there. And a stone wall in that field and a tree next to the wall. And there he finds a cache of money and a letter from Andy. Requesting that Red join him in Zihuatanejo. 
a beautiful town down in Mexico sitting on the Pacific Ocean. And so Red goes and joins his friend in paradise. In the movie, Andy Dufresne refers to Zihuatanejo as a town with no memory that offers absolution for the brokenness of your past and where your sins are washed away in the waters of an ocean whose name means peace. I don't know where you are today in your walk with the Lord, but I do know that God loves you. He cares for you. He can't get enough of you, no matter what sins your past holds, no matter what sins your future holds. Know that Christ has died for them. And that if you believe in him, if his blood marks the doorways of your heart, then the wrath of God has passed over you, that we, like the Israelites of old, may partake in a meal a reminder to all of God's people of all that God has done for them by focusing on a special night of deliverance. Know that if you believe in Jesus, that you can live in the fruits of forgiveness, where our sins have been absolved and we have been washed in the waters of peace. I'm so thankful for a God that recognizes my need to be forgiven regularly, consistently. I'm thankful for a God that knows my heart gasps and sings and settles at hearing the words, you are forgiven. Though Jesus died one time for all time, I am thankful for a God that knows I need to hear those words, you are forgiven again and again and again as I wrestle with my sinfulness. And I am so thankful for a God that instituted the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion where I have the opportunity to be reminded again and again of the God, the Savior, who died for me and the gifts that he has given me, the gifts that he has given you at the table. What a fantastic, gracious, merciful, loving, and forgiving God we serve. 